Hi, I'm Frances Katzen and welcome to my podcast, The World of Real Estate. In this series, we will explore the world's largest asset class and how it plays out on a global scale. I am so excited to welcome Amir Karangi, founder and publisher of the most recognized real estate media outlet, The Real Deal, a publishing titan. He revolutionized real estate journalism 20 years ago, launching what is now the industry Bible. He's incredibly accomplished and in the know, with his finger always on the pulse of the latest happenings and trends while being at the forefront of his field. Amir, I'm so happy you're here today. Thank you for coming on the show. Amir, do you remember when we first met, you called me the one-hit wonder? So here we are. We're both here. <laughs> I know I'm how gonna wrong I was. <laughs> Let it's you know just that, you know, like in the early 2000s, there were all these people who wanted to become real estate brokers. It was a it was a record number of people who wanted to go into real estate because everybody was like, oh, my God, real estate, amazing. <laughs> Let me go make a million dollars. Turning uh, a key. So there was a lot of people that came in, and then there was a lot of people that left. And I just thought maybe you're one of the ones who are going to leave, but you proved me wrong so many (laughs) times. So, Amir, let's talk about how you got into this. First of all, how would you describe yourself? I describe myself as a friendly, nice fellow. I I guess that's uh, how I would see myself. But that's a very uh, loaded question to ask somebody. Maybe it's a better question to ask, uh, like, uh, my ex-girlfriends or something. (laughs) Okay, well, I won't touch that one just yet. Where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, Iran, and then we left after the revolution in uh, 1980. And uh, we were sort of, uh, you know, uh, nomads for about a year. And then we ended up in uh, Washington, D.C. And how did you arrive at Washington, D.C.? And what was it like for you assimilating into Western culture? My gosh. We were very excited about it. We were always obsessed with Disney and McDonald's <laughs> in Iran. So we, I was super excited to, my mom was like, we're going to go to Disneyland. And uh, even though we were like crossing the border from Iran to Afghanistan with like gun smugglers and traffickers. And oh uh, they were like, and my mom was like, we're going to go. We're going to have that. Uh, there's going to be a Big Mac waiting for you. And, you know, <laughs> thinking about it, you know, she was only 28 years old or 27. Wow. Years old, and she had these two kids with her and she had no idea what was going on. And uh, my father sort of, uh, you know, trusted us with these uh, traffickers who were just like trafficking guns and whatever across the borders. And there was, uh, it was the largest modern exodus at the time. So there was 6 million Iranians who left the country within that three-year period. And we were part of that. And uh, and then we- Very dangerous, being... I would imagine. I'm sorry? Very, very dangerous, I would imagine. When you're a kid, you don't realize that, you know, as long as your your parents are happy and they're smiling, you, you sort of just go with it. You don't, you don't know any better. But we ended up coming to, um, we went from Afghanistan to Pakistan and then- Paris uh, somehow by accident and then we ended up in Spain and we were in Spain for about six seven months and we were constantly waiting for a visa to come to go somewhere uh, because we were again nobody there was the whole Iran arms contra thing that was happening where the hostages were there so Iranians were persona non grata especially to the U.S. big time so we had to uh, sneak into the U.S. like so many people do today we my father had a friend uh, who uh, was uh, in, in the import export business, and he managed. He had good relations, 
at the airport in Portugal. And he put <laughs> us on a plane in Lisbon without any paperwork. And we landed in JFK. And back then, this was like long before September 11th. So security what? was very light. All the airlines would land at the same time. So nobody had any sense which airline we came from, which plane we were on. And uh, we just landed and we were like, we don't have any paperwork. We want to claim independency. And, uh, you know, at first they were reluctant, but then eventually they, um, they, they played along. How old were you? I was eight. I was eight. Do you remember eight it? Years old, yeah. Do you remember it? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's uh, how has that shaped you now in terms of when you think back to that time? Would I, you say this influenced your career path? I mean, I know that's a weird question, but there's always some sort of driver once you've seen something or had something happen. I mean, when I got older, I only think about like what my parents had to go through because again, we were me and my brother, we were just tagging along. But it must have been insane for my parents because imagine if you and I would have to leave right now and go move to like Beijing and, you know, not speaking the language, not knowing anybody and trying to make the best of it after we've established ourselves all these years, building a career and everything here. And uh, it was, uh, th th so I always think about my parents and how hard it was for them to deal with it. But for myself, I, you know, it's, uh, you sort of just deal with things. It was harder coming to the U.S., and not speaking the language and being thrown into school. And and it, it's not like I even spoke any European languages. I spoke zero. I only spoke Farsi. Farsi. Yeah. And then that was it. And that's like the most useless <laughs> not language. Not going to help here. Southwest. So, uh, so tell me about that. How did you gain your English skills? And how do you get into publishing? I mean, let's go there. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, um, publishing, I came into it by accident in that I wanted to be a writer. And when I was in school, I had this great teacher who always encouraged me to write. And uh, she would always open up. Back then, we didn't have computers at home. And uh, <laughs> but there was like the computer lab at the school. So she would always <laughs> keep the computer lab open for me so I could stay late to write on it. And I was just, I loved the idea that I could erase like just by hitting the backspace without having to put white out on something. So I was like, this is amazing. I could write all day. And uh, and then she was like, you should, you know, you should go to, uh, when you go to college, you should go to journalism school. I didn't realize that journalism school is not like creative writing. And uh, so I just went and went to, I became, went to journalism school completely by accident. And uh, I was like, this is not bad. And uh, when I, if, by the time I wanted to graduate from school, I really wanted to work at the Boston Globe. I was going to school in Boston and uh, they just wouldn't hire me for anything. They were like, and, you know, all the schools, all the journalists wanted to work be at the Boston Globe or the New York Times or one of these, you know, big papers. And I really wanted to become a journalist and um, I couldn't... Um, I couldn't get a job as I was not a very good student. So my grades weren't that great. And I couldn't get a job as a journalist anywhere. And I was like, well, to fix that, I'm going to start my own newspaper. And that way I can become <laughs> a journalist. So I was like, that, that's the fix. And I was like, you know, 22 years old then. And um, I had a little bit of money after graduation. And I had another friend, uh, John Warner, who was uh, also graduating. And we were like, let's put our money together and you know, start this, uh, start a newspaper. And we were like, let's find a market where we could have, we could start a, a magazine. 
And uh, we we thought something that would be very cool was uh, a magazine for Southern California, basically like um, <laughs> like Gotham magazine, but for Southern California. And we were going to call it why Postal. Southern California. They didn't it they had a great market, but they didn't have a magazine that covered that market. So and then, again, this is before the internet. I mean, we we use the AOL email address <laughs> between the two of us. <laughs> Was, but then uh, we we had we thought it was such a great idea that we went to Southern California and we were, we put together this presentation and we were like well we need money to put this together so let's go to the bank and you know we didn't have a sense of like that you know you need to find investors that so we would walk into like a Citibank or Wells Fargo and be like yeah Stop. we're, we're going to start a magazine can you give us a, here's a deck. We're going to make millions of dollars from it. You know, you're <laughs> young and stupid. You, th you think your ideas are the best ideas. And they were like, well, this is not how it works and uh, all of that. And um, uh, it was very discouraging because nobody wanted to lend us money. And we were like, well, we still we came all the way this way, all from all the way from the East Coast to the West Coast to do this thing. We're not going to stop now. And we're Amazing. like, the, the biggest expense here is the printing of the of the magazine so everything's cheaper in mexico so let's go to mexico and find new printing there and we went to mexico we drove down there we went to a printing plant and uh it turned out that like uh, printing was like far more expensive in mexico than it was in the states <laughs> because they didn't have the technology and there was only like one printer for an entire region so it was like uh, it was far more expensive but what we saw there was that there's all these Americans who live within like 30, 40 miles of the border, you know, expats, felons, retirees, all sorts of Americans that didn't, there was no uh, speaking English uh, newspapers for those people. And wow. uh, we were like, well, this, this is even a better idea than like trying to market to those rich guys. These guys don't have anything to read. <laughs> like you had all of these people who live there and 90% of them didn't even speak in, uh, Spanish. So it, all the Spanish news was useless to them. So we were like, what would be great is to do a weekly newspaper for this audience and just translate local news into English and, you know, put it out there. So we started wow. South of the Border Gringo Gazette and we, uh, <laughs> there was a... Gringo. And we, we still had a printing issue. And we there was this woman who had inherited, um, she was a terrible drunk. She, and she had inherited a, a, a printing plant from her like ailing husband. And of course you would find this person. Well, we went to every of... printer. We went to every printer in Long Beach and in, in Southern California, trying to get somebody to get, allow us to print on credit. And uh, she was the only one that was like, I love this. I have two houses in Mexico. This is a great idea. I'm going to give you guys... I'm not going to give you one uh, one issue. I'm going to give you two issues on credit because it takes a while to get business. Wow. And she was very helpful. She was very nasty when she would drink, and but uh, she was very helpful because she she, she sort of taught us the way. And she was like, she was. Uh, I hate to say she was a mentor, but uh, she, <laughs> she did uh, like she did tell us a lot of stuff that we needed to understand about the printing business that I, we had no idea about. So she was very resourceful in that way. And uh, we always knew when to ask her for favors, like right, like her drinking time would start like at 3 p.m. That's when she was like, right before drinking, that's when she was at her best mood. So whenever we needed to ask for an extension or anything, we'd have to catch her like at 2.50. That's like when she was like at her best mood. You catch her in the morning, absolute hell in the morning. But uh, And then she, she would get extremely aggressive by like 6, 7 p.m. where she would get really nasty. Wow, so you really had to time your calls. Yeah. Yeah. And you weren't available when she made those calls, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, boy.
so she gave you a line of credit for these two issues. And yeah. what happened? So we went and immediately uh, we saw that all the businesses, the Mexican businesses and the American businesses were trying to target the Americans. So it was wow. very easy to get advertising, surprisingly easy. And, uh, you know, so you got like AT&T and all of these yes, guys jumping yeah. so in. Yes, in our Amazing. first issue, we had MCI. MCI is no longer around, but it was a major telecom company. But we had MCI, we had Caliente, which is a big gambling organization in Mexico, and uh, like all sorts of major brands. That, and we were like, yes, a full page ad is $1,500. And they wouldn't even blink. And we were like, oh, my God, we've made it. <laughs> and uh, they, uh, so we started getting advertising. And we, the first issue was uh, flat to profitable. And then by the second, third issue, we were fully profitable. It was great. And so, okay, so you've done that. And then what happens next? And then uh, we, you know, it was weird. This was during NAFTA. And uh, yep. so for every one American employee in Mexico, we had to have nine Mexican employees. <laughs> and uh, But Mexican employees were incredibly cheap in Mexico. Like you could uh, hire people for like, you know, $9 a day or $6 a day or something. So we, we our distribution was amazing. So we would hire all of these people for like five, $6 a day to do distribution. And we the magazine we had it at every door it was a newspaper but we had it at every doorstep we had it at every shop so because we had to hire 18 employees by law to be able to do it and then another thing was that it was very diff they wouldn't allow us to print it in the because it was a news uh newspaper they wouldn't allow us to new, uh, uh, print it outside of mexico and then bring it in because they didn't want propaganda to come in which is china also has the same sort of uh, rules i'm sure other countries also have that and they, uh, so we had to, we had to, we would print 20, 25,000 copies. And we had this, uh, we would have to put it in the U-Haul from Long Beach, California, and uh, drive it into Mexico. And after about seven, eight months, it started to take a toll on us. And Carrie, who owned the printing house, she all, she became obsessed with our newspaper because she loved Mexico. She had two homes, one in Baja and one somewhere else. And, um, and she had a plane. So she was like always going to Mexico. She was like, you know what? I want to buy this paper from you guys. And I want to write all the food reviews. <laughs> so she ended up <laughs> buying the paper. And believe it or not, I think it's still going on. It's like 30 Stop. years into it. No, it's like at every hotel. And, uh, you know, it's. She, I think she's still, uh, I don't know if she's still around. I haven't been in touch with her. But, I, but the paper, I think it's still out there. So it's cool. That's wild. Okay. So was there publishing in your family's lineage? No, no. We, you know, I only learned about publishing because uh, I learned how to uh, work PageMaker. And a lot of people won't remember PageMaker, <laughs> but it was before InDesign. So with a Mac and PageMaker, you could just put together newspapers. So like what would require like 30, 40 people to put, you know, design a paper, I could just sit there and design it myself. So uh, it, the 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 you know the industry had changed dramatically and the people who picked up on it like me they were able to go in there with a mac you know and the software and be able to compete with uh, you know major publications and i feel like the same thing is happening now with uh, with ai like the people who have yes. that technology now are have a huge leverage over yes. companies who are so slow to adopt it we you know we're trying to put it into every department into, Are you really? Yeah, I mean, we already have it. We have it. We have nine departments at the real deal. We have it in six of them so far. And I'm trying to figure out new, uh, you know, web faces for the three departments that we don't uh, have. We haven't incorporated AI into. But I, you know, I was 
in, in uh, you know, I was in the whole web business, you know, uh, when I first came to New York, I was working for Yahoo. And I remember people resisting to incorporate uh, web for their business, like, you know, multi-billion. Selling companies. books online. It was a joke. And yeah, then they it didn't understand it. A, how, no, I mean, I was just getting to that. So you worked for Yahoo during its heyday, and then you started to invest in real estate. Tell me what was happening and how it catapulted you to start the real deal and why real estate. So I, when I came to New York, I started working for Yahoo and I was in product development. I, I, it, it, the speed of which I saw businesses gain uh, you know, revenues and business was incredible. And it was like, if you use the web, this is how fast you can grow. And if you don't use it, this is where you stay. And I'm seeing the same thing now with AI, which is incredible. I mean, there's been a lot of fads with like, you know, NFTs and crypto and all this other stuff, but AI is complete, is very different from all that stuff. So uh, I'm seeing the same thing happen there. And I saw it happen in 1998, you know, with these uh, companies. And um, I was, uh, you know, I was at Yahoo uh, for about, uh, for about a year or so. And I was, I, and I had bought an apartment in Brooklyn where nobody wanted to be in Brooklyn back then. This was like before the gentr great gentrification. You were a definite leader in all of this. My and then so I, I was like, as long as I'm next to a subway station, I can be okay. anywhere in the city. And I don't mind like sitting on the subway for 25 minutes. So I was like, let me just be any somewhere. <laughs> so I was like, let me go to Prospect Heights because the Prospect Heights area was very close, like a small area. And you had the West side trains and the East yep. side trains like on a few blocks from each Both side. Sides. Mm -hmm. so I was like, this is a no brainer. And I ended up buying a two bedroom there. And then I went, I went to sell it because after I left, um, when September 11th happened, mm -hmm. um, it was it, like I didn't have a job, and I was like waiting tables. I was like, I were you really? Yeah, I was like, I can't. I couldn't find a job anywhere. My name was Amir. <laughs> Everybody wow. like it was very tough, and wow. the market had just completely crashed. And I didn't. Uh, I was like, what is the point? Of, oops, sorry about that. I was like, what is the point of um, of being in New York? Like, I don't have to be here. I could be anywhere in the country. So. I went to sell my apartment and my apartment had gone up in value by like 200% or something. I bought it for like 105,000. I ended up selling it for like 360,000. I was like, this is amazing. I'm not going to do anything else in life. I'm going to just <laughs> buy apartments in Brooklyn and sell them. And then I started doing that. I started buying apartments and buying from local. Again, this is like before the internet connected everybody. So I was buying from local brokers in Brooklyn who had no idea what the market in Manhattan was paying for apartments. And I was uh, marketing them to, uh, I was selling them through Corcoran. So I would buy them from, you know, Joe Blow uh, brokerage on Washington Avenue. And I would just take that listing without doing any, but I would make minor like cosmetic things, changes to it. And then immediately put it uh, listed with uh, Corcoran. And then I became really good at that. And I was like, Flipping, I ended up doing like 16 apartments and like uh, townhouses and stuff in a matter of a few years. And it was the money was really good from it, but I hated, <laughs> I hated what I was doing. I was like, I hate this. I, I don't want to be. You hate brokers? Business. Just say it. <laughs> <laughs> no, not brokers. I, I was the one uh, doing the work, but uh, yeah. I just, I was like dealing with contractors and it was just mm -hmm. like work that didn't excite me. The money was really good though. And I was like, you know what? There's, I was like, here's a market of real estate professionals, all super professional. Like in my, I grew up in the uh, Maryland, Virginia, DC area. And when you thought about, 
when you thought about real estate brokers, you would think about your friend's mom who would be a real estate <laughs> broker like for two hours in the afternoon. And that would be, and that's what I always thought of real estate brokers until I came to New York and I would meet these people. There was like, I used to be a medical doctor, but now I'm a real estate broker because the money yeah. is so much better. Yeah. So these are very sophisticated people. And real estate is the largest asset class in the world. And it's more influential than uh, finance, which is saying a lot in New York. And but they didn't have anything to read. They had like some, you know, some very like pay to play, yes, uh, sort of publications. Correct. But they didn't have anything yeah. that was intelligent uh, for that audience. And I was, I was blown away by it. I was like, you know what? I'm gonna use my, uh, you know, page maker to put together a sample, <laughs> sort of a magazine for this, and uh, and I wanted it to. I wanted cranes to do it because I really like cranes. So I put together a model of what it should look like. And I took it to Rance Crane. And at that point, I think he had like 44 magazines and they were all tabloid style magazines. And they were like on everything. They were like, you know, Cranes New York and uh, or like on uh, Cranes on tires, Cranes on insurance. And 40% of their advertising was real estate brokers. And I told him, I was like, look, you have all of this advertising from real estate professionals and investors, but you don't have any real estate content. And he was like, nobody wants to read about real estate. There's not, there's nothing happening in real estate. <laughs> I was like, because nobody's covering it. You know, the New York Times, I had a lot of friends that worked at the New York Times. They didn't, they, the real estate section was the highest grossing section for the New York Times in the early 2000s. Wow. And uh, they didn't have a dedicated editor or reporter to it. It was like a chore for the reporters to write something about real estate. And it was always about like some Argyle on the townhouse somewhere. It was like just nonsense. <laughs> like Christopher Gray would do these columns. They were fun <laughs> to read, but they were like, they didn't give you any information. So I, so I wow. put together this model for it. And he was like, it's not interesting. Nobody wants to read about real estate. I was like, you know what? Screw it. I think people do. And I did this one flip on St. John's place that I did in Brooklyn that I didn't think it was going to happen because the co-op board knew I was a flipper, but it, I, it, I still managed to do that deal. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to take this money that wasn't supposed to come in and put it towards four issues of putting together the real deal. And, uh, you know, I, I, the, those first, I love the name. Yeah, Where'd you get the name from? You know, real for real estate deal because real estate's about deals. And um, funny enough, uh, there was um, there was a guy who was called the Shark of Wall Street before the Wolf of Wall Street, and um, what's it? Wasserstein, uh, and yes. he was like a massive. Uh, and he he was a finance guy who always wanted yep. to be in publishing, and he had a magazine for the M and A audience, also tabloid style with tabloid glossy, which is like Variety, you know, like the real deal. And uh, he had it for. Um, for finance and MA, and it was a daily magazine that he put out every day and he had a weekly edition it was a serious publication and like four or five months after i started the real deal he sues me he no first he says he wants to buy the real deal and then uh, he knew i was working out of my apartment and he was like um i'll buy it and i was like you know what we just had donald trump on the cover i was like you know what i think i'm gonna hold on to it for a little bit and see what happens Good for you. and then next thing i know i get a letter from aiken and gump which is like a big white shoe law firm saying that they're suing me for uh, trademark infringement and uh, copyright infringement. And they, they said that I've taken a lot of nefarious actions because before I started the real deal, I went to all these magazines that I liked and pretended to be a broker. And I wanted to hear what these advertising salespeople, how they pitch <laughs> because I wanted to understand how to pitch it. Wow. And I was like, these guys are terrible. I was like, I could do a much better job <laughs> than these guys. So, but they had me on record that I was, I went into their offices. 
I met with salespeople. I met with product people. So they thought it was very nefarious. And I was like, you know what? At this point, who cares? Like, I'd rather like, and because they were so nasty when they sued me, they were like, we know you're out of, working out of your apartment. We know you don't have much money. So we're going to take everything. Like, we're going to sue you for your wow. apartment and everything. you wow. and, stuff. and I was like, I was like, you that get this, myth, you get this thought in your head. You're like, ah, fuck you. you. I was like, I'd rather totally. see this ship burn down than for you to then give it to you. Then give it to you. So totally. we're like, let's go to court. <laughs> so we were like, and it was like a federal court because it's a trademark uh, lawsuit. So we went to federal court. That's an expensive <laughs> habit. Okay. It, it is very expensive, especially for trademark law, because the lawyers you hire oh. have to be not only like, not only have a master's in law, but they also have to have a master's in something technical, like engineering or something. So you're- So $1,500 a minute. So like out the right. gate, you're like- <laughs> So I went to this grand. woman who was uh, who I ended up dating. She was great, <laughs> and she was uh, she was my lawyer for it. And she, uh, I told her I was I can't afford to pay you, but uh, not not in money at least. But uh, I was, <laughs> but I was like, uh, I can, um, I, I'll give you, uh, I'll give you a percentage of the company if we come out on the other side of it. And, uh, you know, she was like, this is good. It's um, the New York Post was covering it. You know, the, the the daily news was covering it. The blogs were covering it. So she was like, I get some press out of it. So she ended up covering it. But she was these, we would go to court and it was like a full on, you know, court case. Like we would show up and Aiken, the Aiken and Gump guys would show oh up with like a, all these guys <laughs> in amazing suits. I was like, wow, this is <laughs> Those guys look really handsome in those suits. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, wow. and then I would look at my attorney and she was like reading everything off the piece of paper. I was like, we're so fucked. But uh, <laughs> there was, um, I was at a party one time and it's, this is a great part about New York because like you just go to a party and everybody's working at the times or the post or like, especially in the media world, everybody knows each other. So I was at this party and then my friend who was hosting the party, he was like, Amir, she talked to this guy. He, he's the business editor at the post. Uh, Amir is uh, fucking Mort, uh, Mort Zuck, uh, Amir is screwing over Mort Zuckerman and Bruce Wasserstein all with his <laughs> uh, paper. And the guy was like, I'm interested. How's this working? And uh, I was like, well, Bruce Wasserstein had, I, I don't know if I'm confusing everybody, but no, you're not. Bruce Wasserstein had just stolen. And I, I mean, he, Bruce Wasserstein was about to buy New York magazine, which was a very, Sort of a Mort Zuckerman. Mort Zuckerman was about to buy uh, uh, what's the New York Magazine, which was a very important magazine for New York at that time. Yeah, and um, so he was about to buy it for forty million dollars. And the day before the deal, he throws a party. So uh, Mort Zuckerman throws a party for the staff of the New York uh, Magazine and everything the day before they're about to close. That morning, Bruce Wasserstein writes a check for $55 million, $15 million more than him to do the deal right then. So it was a huge egg on Mort Zuckerman's face that he couldn't do this deal because he had already told everybody he's buying it. He threw a party and he was super excited about it. And wow. he owned the Daily News at the time. He owned he owned Fast Company, The Atlantic. He owned uh, uh, you know a bunch of other great uh, US News and World Report. And he was about to put this uh, thing under his uh, cap. And so Bruce Wasserstein oh comes God. in, soups in, and buys the oh magazine God. right from under him. So the story I told the reporter was like, Mort Zuckerman wants to fuck with uh, Bruce Wasserstein. So he's buying the real deal to fuck with the deal because uh, Wasserstein <laughs> loved the deal. That was like his uh, baby. That That's he why he wanted to come after you. Yeah. And so they, so all of a sudden, the Wasserstein wow, people smart. are like, 
well, hold on a second. Now it's not just Amir out of his Brooklyn apartment. Now it's Mort Zuckerman too. And of course, when they called Mort Zuckerman for a comment, he was like, no comment. I don't talk to the Post because he owned the Daily News. <laughs> and uh, so the Post puts out this story that Mort Zuckerman is going to buy the real deal to fuck with <sighs> Wasserstein. So the Wasserstein people panic and they're like, they go for a summary judgment. They go for a summary judgment and we win on all accounts. And it was like an amazing win for us, which I was very excited about. <sighs> And then now how much did you get a nice fat retribution in nothing I mean, like, so they were like nothing. we could go uh we'll we'll uh dismiss everything with uh, prejudice which means that right. I, if i agreed not to get my legal fees and they would agree not to come back and sue me again uh later down the road wow. and then so i went to the lawyer I was like this is amazing this and that and she ended up uh, dating or marrying her partner. And she was like, I can't be involved with you in any way. So just pay me like 80 grand and, uh, you know, <laughs> consider it, you know, bills paid. So I was like, that's even better. So, you know, she gave me a year to pay her the $80,000 and we were done. Unbelievable. It all really worked story. out. I really felt like uh, God was watching me. Totally. That is un. I never. I never knew that story. Wow. So, okay, so you push through with the real deal. You get through the investors. Who were your early investors, actually? I didn't have any investors. Okay. So I, by the time we, uh, we launched, <laughs> I couldn't get any investors. And people still didn't understand the idea of, like, how are you going to write about real estate? Like, what the hell are you going to write about? And it was just funny to me. I was like, there's all these things happening. And there was all these, like, really colorful personalities and characters uh, that were just, like, funny. And they didn't have any sort of training talking to the press. So they would say really outlandish shit. Even, like, <laughs> your big guys, like Larry Silverstein, would say, like, crazy stuff. Like, whoa, like... We, we talked to this one guy early on and he was like this, well, you know, you know what happens if you have too many black people in your building? <laughs> this is like, just like, as if nobody was listening, we we're like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And we, so we started getting people's attention very early on and, uh, and there was an audience for it. And I remember putting out the very first issue. I thought it was such a great idea to have the magazine there that, um, um, that I thought everybody was going to steal the idea. So I I went all in on the distribution. I was like, if I put it in everybody's hands, then nobody can come and like try to recreate it. And then I, I hired the best distributor Smart. in the city, which was Mitchell News. And they did the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. And they, they were the major uh, distributor. And I met with Mitchell early on. And he was like, I love this. This is great. And, you know, I'm going to like, I'll allow you to do monthly installments because normally they don't do that. And he was very helpful and he was a, he was a great uh, vendor to partner with. And uh, so I didn't have any investors, but I always managed to uh, get what we needed. And even today, which is very rare, but you know, it's 20 years later, we never know any investors, you know, it's uh, the real deal is wholly owned by the people who work here. Wow. Well, first of all, congratulations on the 20th anniversary. Oh, thank you so much. Amazing. Yeah. So you, we've sort of described the landscape of publishing when you started versus now. And now we're getting into AI. Now we're getting into this very, in some ways, I, looking at this, am nervous for, for writing. And the reason I say that is, for example, script writers in Hollywood, we all know that there's a huge issue going on. Everyone's on, um, you know, there's a, a you know, um, Hollywood's on strike. Yes. And and in a way, I kind of want to protect those writers that are slower and more methodical, but they're talented. So when do you stop 
AI overstepping the creativity that's born into people who write beautifully. I mean, yeah. there is this discrepancy, no? Yeah, I mean, it's also, you know, it's funny that uh, when it, the whole chat GPT thing first happened about a year ago, yeah. all of these people were like talking about universal pay. They're like, all the jobs are going to be by machines. So we have to come up with some sort of universal pay or people are going to start eating each other up. But uh, obviously it's not there now, but it's definitely on the way there. But my thinking generally is that if you can use something to be more efficient, if you can use something to be better, why not use that tool? It's like, uh, if, but is it if it's there, then you have to figure out how to use it. So it's, you know, there was this great quote that it's not AI that's going to take your job, but it's people, it's somebody who knows AI who's going to take your job. <laughs> so if you're able to use it to your advantage, I think yeah, there's no stopping it. The cat's out of the bag. You know, unfortunately, uh, OpenAI, when they released it, they were running out of money and they were like, let's just put it out there and see what happens. And it was put out there without any sort of thought or process. And, you know, Google had access to this information since 2013, but they've wow. always held it behind doors. So did uh, Microsoft. And they didn't have it as well as Google did, but all of this technology was available for the last 10 years. But they wanted to be methodical about how they put it out there because you can't just you know, give a gun to a kid and be like, here, go play, be safe with it. So you're saying to me that you support AI with your writers. So with news, it's different. Like AI is uh, taking content from existing content. News is something that happens. And so it's not something that's out there. It's something that we have to create. It's news is news. But yes, we support it in the sense that if I can put 10 bullet points into get the news part of it and put 10 bullet points into one of these programs and have it sort of frame a story for me. It's sped up our productivity by a multiple of like 40%. And that's because we're not using it as much as we could. It could speed mm -hmm. up our productivity by a lot more, but it's not only about being productive. It's also like, what do I want my writers to worry about? Do I want them worrying about like going out there and getting the news, which is the real value of what they're writing about or right. spending their time trying to structure uh, a sentence, you know, but look, the AI, the technology is not there to do it beautifully yet, but it's definitely around the corner. It's coming. It is around. So the, the corner. sooner we understand how it's going to be incorporated, uh, the better it is. And that's why we're doing, I want to plug in TRD AI that we're doing on November 10th in Miami. So it's a, it's a all day sort of a curriculum on, uh, you know, about 22 different actual use cases for real estate. So if, if your millions of listeners are tuning in, they are uh, welcome to come to that. It's on November 10th. Okay. Well, we're going to have to advertise that as well. Um, so let's talk about this. The biggest lessons you've learned over the years while growing the real deal, what would they be and how you went about implementing those changes personally and professionally? Wow, that's a lot. I mean, the <laughs> first lesson is- I am a lot. Uh, yeah. The first, <laughs> I think the thing that made me, I, and I never forget this, it was like 10, 12 years into the business. And I was with this uh, guy who's like a you know big deal. And he was like, what's your biggest fear? I mean, I was like, my biggest fear is that the, I'm going to lose the business because I'm not able to generate uh, revenues and I'm going to have to go back to Brooklyn with my tail between my legs. And he was like, can I give you some advice? He was like, you should stop worrying about that. He was like, you're wasting your time thinking about that. That's not going to happen. He was like, you should focus on how to grow the business. 
And it just to hear that from somebody to get that safety, because when you run your own company, there's yeah. nobody that like sort of pats you on the back and says, you're doing no. good, Amir, keep going. You have to sort of do it for yourself. So to hear that from somebody else, who, somebody who I respected, I uh, I was like, wow, that that makes me feel, that is, I feel like- I've arrived. Yeah, I feel like somebody like uh, took this weight off my shoulders that never needed to be there. And uh, that that was that was a, that was a nice uh, that was a, I don't know if it was a lesson, but it was like a big relief to be like you know what yeah we're sort of established we've been around for twelve years it's we're not a fly by night company we have like eighty people in the office so it it, it did allow me the syndrome what's that <laughs> the imposter syndrome yes yes one hundred percent so it was uh, it was a big relief um, but uh, and then the other thing was that. You know, I realized that I can't have any friends in the industry, which was um, which was always very tough because, like, people would be like, "Amir, why would you write that story?" I had yeah, my kids bought mitzvah. And I was <laughs> two different things, you know, <sighs> and uh, it, it, that was always uh, and that became very clear to me too that like I could just uh, that like it's hard to have friends, I, and that not only friends in the business, mm. but. Like even my own friends, like I always picked the real deal over like if somebody told me a story, I'd never forget a friend of mine was buying a townhouse in Brooklyn and uh, I found out who who was uh, who he was buying it from. And I put the story out there and the deal went sour. It was like somebody from the Strokes who was buying the townhouse from her. So I was like, this is a cool story. Total real deal story. Let's put it out there. And the deal went sour because of that. And then another time more recently. My uh, my friend was doing a partnership with Hermes during COVID in Sag Harbor, and when I again I I chose the real deal over my friend telling me that. But you know, if somebody tells me something is off the record, I totally adhere to that rule, and I I don't mention it to anybody. But um, when people just tell me stuff and like you know I have this bigger thing that I'm operating, I sort of like go the path of. Uh, the real deal. Uh, the li- yeah, the liability. Okay, so what was the most important decision you've made in your career progression, and what is your biggest achievement thus far? Uh, that's a good question. I think uh, at one time I was talking to uh, Barbara Corcoran was my first issue of the real deal, and then years later I had a birthday party for Martha Stewart, and Barbara Corcoran came to there, and I was talking to her. And she was like, it's it's crazy that, you know, you're still doing these things uh, and you're showing up to dinners. I was like, well, it's a dinner for Martha Stewart. It's not like some Joe Blow dinner. <laughs> so I, I, she, I was like, but what what do you but like? What did you do? Like when you started like growing your company, like what were the things that you sort of applied? She was like, I made a list of everything I hated about my job, like as me being part of that company. And she was like, I focused for like two years removing those things, either passing off those duties to somebody else or just removing them entirely. If they weren't that, you know, if I didn't have to have them in the company, just crossing them off and just not doing that job. And she was like, that freed me up by a lot. And I tried that exercise and it worked out great. And what I had to do was, it allowed me to realize that I had to hire a lot more people. I used to think I can do that. Or one person, the person I hired to do that can also do this job. But then we would have a lot more burnout. So we had people leaving the company at a faster pace. But at the same time, those are the things that allowed us to compete with the bigger guys because 
we would go in there lean and we would stay lean for as long as we needed to, to edge out other people. And now we are the largest real estate news outlet in the country. But if we had to do it the way we do it today, I, I wouldn't be able to afford to do it. Like I had to do it very lean. I had to do it by doing multiple jobs. I had to have other people doing multiple jobs. But um, I think the best thing that uh, I did, I was very lucky to partner with uh, Stuart Elliott, who was like uh, my first editor. He was at the New York Times. And uh, I was like, do you want to be at the New York Times? Do you want to be a lowly reporter at the New York Times? Or do you want to come to my house and <laughs> and be the editor of The Real Deal? <laughs> Luckily for me, Stuart was not very motivated. Like, Stuart wanted to be an editor. So he was, and he had, you know, he comes, uh, you know, he, he, he was living in Manhattan. He was doing the reverse commute to Brooklyn. And he, you know, he, and he, it was great. It's He's been my partner since he came on board and we've been at it for 20 years. That's quite a, that's quite a compliment, isn't it? Yeah. And Yoav Barland, who was also with me at college, he was a very, um, he was a hardcore sales guy. Like he was Israeli with Israeli military background. And <laughs> those guys are just like very tough. You don't mess with them. Yeah. So he was, so he came on board early on. He was working for the, uh, um, Jerusalem Post or something. And he came on board early on and he also had a, you know, he would bring in all this advertising. I was like, I, I was so impressed with him. So we were like, we got to find other Israeli soldiers who want to come <laughs> into advertising. We, then we hired a, a, a fellow by the name of Aaron Evron. He was also an amazing sales guy. I remember him. Yeah. He's amazing. Yeah, these guys were just like relentless and they were relentless into advertising. <laughs> But it worked. Hey, friend. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> okay. So what do you think has changed for the good in real estate as we start to move on from the pandemic? I think uh, just in general, the fact that, you know, when I, when I started the real deal 20 years ago, the people that were very successful in real estate, there were people whose, whose dad was so-and-so and whose mom was so-and-so or who were, uh, or who, I didn't or, have any of that. Right. So th then all of a sudden, all of this information started to be free flowing online. And now there's even more. There's even more information. There's even more data. There's absolutely no reason uh, for people not to have every part of the sales process, you know, uh, filled with data on when to sell it, why to sell it, who's your target audience. All of that information is out there. The, and so you could be anybody without any family relations and out, without any sort of pedigree, come into the market, understand how to apply this data to your practice. And the amazing part is like, it's not, you don't even have to sit on the phone and cold call people. Like you could generate leads, you know, half a dozen different ways where you're just like, you know, emailing people and, you know, texting people and stuff like that. And then if you can impress people, with your knowledge of the market, I feel like people always will go, even if like, I'm sorry, mom, but I'm going to go with Fran because Fran <laughs> just has, Fran seems to know what she's like talking about. And I'm always blown away with that because even today, like you have people who are investing in massive development projects and these are developers and um, investors who've obviously have done very well for themselves. And, but now they're in this in this market where all this information is available and they don't use any of it. They're like, no. oh, I like I like the Lower East Side. It's because it's in Manhattan. I have a feeling about this. You're talking about, <laughs> That's so true. You're talking about like a $200 million project 
and you don't want to use all this data that's available to you. Uh, mm-hmm. And that, that, that always blows my mind. And I feel like whenever it's things like that happen, there's going to be this period where those people just sort of get pushed to the side. And then this new breed of broker or this new breed of investor that comes out that just eats those people's lunch. Yeah, they do. And that, that's a, that's what a... happened with you know traders who were using Bloomberg terminals versus guys who weren't. Not everybody wanted to pay $20,000 to Michael Bloomberg to use the Bloomberg terminal, but the ones who did had a clear advantage over the ones who didn't. A hundred percent. So what would your advice today to the younger you just starting out? Hey, if you're really serious, I never forget the first time I met Michael Schwab, it was like outside of Baltazar and he they just profiled him in New York Magazine. And I was like, I was like, what the, what makes you successful? Like there's, you have no pedigree. You're like, you don't know anybody. Like, how did you become so successful in a matter of like four or five years? You're already being written about in books. So like there was like Sky's the Limit had like an entire chapter about Michael Schwo and nobody, this guy, everybody else. He was moving, he was moving uh, furniture. Yeah, he was moving rental furniture. Moishas, yeah. He was like, I, uh, he was like, I was looking for a rental apartment. He was like, I realized how lazy all of these real estate brokers are. He was like, these guys don't work. So he was like, if I could just come into the field and work, I can succeed. And he was right, because in a matter of four years, he became one of the top brokers in the city. And that's saying a lot, right? So because I he know. had all of these people who were in the business for 30 years, he surpassed all of those guys yep. to the top within four years just by working. Even now, you could test it out. I'm looking for an apartment. I email people. And it takes them like three, four days to get back to me. Said, oh, it's obnoxious. I'm looking. I'm a live lead ready to buy something. <laughs> and it takes you four days. I'm already talking to the next guy or the first guy who calls me back. And so that still exists. Not everybody goes into it. And I think the 80-20 rule is more... Uh, prevalent in in real estate than anywhere else because you you have that ten percent or fifteen percent that's doing all the business and then you have eighty five percent of people who are just there in title and you know name. But I think like there's you know if if you start out in real estate today like there's so much information out there to make you very intelligent. You can subscribe to the real deal obviously so that you know what to talk about and what what the market is doing. But uh, there and there's so many events that you're always connecting with people. And I can't tell you there's this great saying by Marcus Aurelius who says there's no book so bad that you can't learn something from it. And I 100% <laughs> agree with that. There's no dinner party that's so bad that you can't go in there and pick up some value from it. There's no conversation like there's no bad conversations like if you ask the right questions you're going to have an intriguing conversation i mean unless the other person is a dud but hopefully you can judge who you want to talk to and uh, you know go to events uh, go to be out be sociable and uh, connect with people i think that's such an important part especially when you're starting out just building up that rolodex and connecting with them. Your boss, Howard Lorber, is somebody I learned something from, and uh, which is a very old school thing. He he has a list of phone calls that he makes every year. Even at, this guy is the highest paid guy in the business. And even to this day, he has a list of phone numbers that he has or people that he has that he calls once a month. He's like, hey, Amir, what's going on? What are, what are you guys up to? What are you guys working on? To, like just to shoot the shit for two minutes. Okay, great. So well, smart. let me know if anything's going on. And I can't tell you the impact that has on the people that he's calling. For me, I feel very important that he's calling me and I feel like I have to share something of value with him too. <laughs> but it's also brilliant because like you're constantly top of mind for all of these 
for all this 50 or 100 or 200 people that you want to be in touch with. So if you're starting out and, you know, always tell our guys, like, reach out to people and be like, hey, friend, I thought you might be interested in this article that we did. That's it. Toodaloo. You're off. You know, hey, friend, here's another one. It's it's in the building that you did a deal in. Maybe you're interested in this. And that's it. You leave it at that and you move on. But then you're like top of mind. And, you know, if you ever needed to contact a reporter, you know exactly who to call. Hey, I know a guy, the real deal who reaches out to me every month. But, you know, obviously for you, you probably have a your list is you know more VIP. But like when you're starting out, everybody that you meet, you just keep talking to them. Anything else going on? Any other events I should be going to? Are there any, you know, launches or I don't know? No, I think I think you're right. I think there's a generation of kids now that don't actually like to call. Yeah. They text. Yeah. And so this intimacy of being in front of people is kind of not a comfort thing. And I keep pushing the younger generation to make it FaceTime and live call. You have to force um, it almost. But you have to. It's a service to them. And I always tell the managers, you know, I was like, I know it's hard for you to ask these people to do certain things, but they're going to leave here find like realizing that's of tremendous value. And they're going to say, you know, I had this great manager friend who always forced me to go out to meetings and stuff. And they're going to, they're going to have fond memories. If, if you're teaching them something good that they're going to have fond memories of you and working for you, for, for you and learning from you. So I think as managers and owners, we have to do the uncomfortable thing of saying like, no, uh, so-and-so you need to make these phone calls it has to be on the phone you cannot it's so easy for people to just erase the email but people's you know you can break people down by a phone call or face to face by a lot more there's this uh there was a study that like you know after like you could be proper and fake it for as much as you can for about like eight to 12 minutes but after 12 minutes your guards are going to come down you're going to say stupid shit so we (laughs) tell people to like in the first like five six minutes talk about bullshit like how's the weather your kids you guys just came back get them talking about anything else and then by minute eight minute ten they're like you start asking them things and they start oversharing with you which is uh makes for better <laughs> stories that is a good point it is very very true what in your crystal ball what do you see as the future of real estate it's um you know, shelter has really not changed uh, in a really long time. And that's why this whole work from home thing is sort of freaky to me because the last time real estate as a use and as a commodity and product changed the way it has was during the industrial revolution. That was the last time that we saw cities being born, like real cities being born where people were, you know, had their shops and then their offices and then their homes, like all, you know, stacked up on each other. And that sort of thinking didn't really change, but like what worries me now that I don't, I don't have a crystal ball for is that, and I don't think, you know, a lot of people sort of try to avoid the conversation, but what worries (laughs) me now is just the future of cities in general, because the fact is, you know, like if you take New York, for example, this is a very extreme case of it. You have 500 million square feet of office space. And there's all this talk of people coming back to space. But even let's say you get 80% of the people to come back to the office, you still have 110 million square feet of office space that's going to be sitting empty. And that's that's in New York. So imagine like all these other smaller cities where you know they don't have so much space. 
And there's no reason for people to come to these core areas, like, mm -hmm. you know, of urban areas, because people could be everywhere. And people say they like being in the cities, and I think they do. But still, when you open up the office and you say, hey, anybody who wants to come to the office, you can come voluntarily, nobody shows up. Nobody, nobody wants to leave their house at the end of the day to come to the office, unfortunately. It's only the like the the people you sort of have to force them or make it mandatory for them to come to the office. And I feel like that I think office Zoom component, just did that. What's that? I think Zoom just did that. Yeah. And it's funny, and Zoom has offices. I know. They forced everyone back. They said, yeah. we're done. Yeah. In. Sorry, and keep going. We're in Hudson Yards and, you know, all these major financial firms who are paying their people a lot of money, they have everybody back in the office. But I feel like, again, that's like sort of forced on them. And if it's not something that people just generally want to do, I don't think you're going to be able to occupy this 500 million square feet of commercial office space, which has a much which has a longer tail on it on how it's going to impact real yes, estate. I agree like with it's you. going to change retail. It's going to change residential. People it's already are like, changing it. People are like, let's just convert it to residential. Well, you can't. what does it mean? You can't the market? retrofit it. hundred million square. But let's say you could retrofit it. They, you know, there was this report that only like 1%, 1.5% 1 of the commercial space can be converted. But let's say you could do it easily. Let's say you could convert all of it to residential. What the hell are you going to do with 200 million square feet of residential office space? I mean, uh, office space. That's residential. And uh, what what will that mean for all these people who paid extra money to have, you know, to for residential land? What what will it mean for residential properties and the value of residential properties? But yeah. um, that's the sort of the unknown that I think it'll be very interesting. But, you know, in the unknown, obviously, there's a lot of opportunity, especially for new people, mm -hmm. because... This is an unknown for everybody. And the bigger you are, the RXRs of the world, the, the bigger companies of the world, they're the ones who, who have to move slowly. They have a longer budget to be able to see what happens. But the newer companies that can move and shift fast and understand what the changes are and jump on that stuff, I think it creates a lot of great opportunity for, for smaller companies and newer companies to jump in and take a piece of the pie. It's going to be interesting. Before we wrap up, Two more questions. What's your secret sauce? It's um, olive oil in the hair. <laughs> <laughs> secret sauce. Well, that's interesting. I'm a purist, so I'm just salt and pepper for all my foods. But uh, secret sauce, secret sauce. I don't know. Like I, uh, I feel like just uh, being uh, brutally honest is uh, it's hard to swallow for some people. At first, they might be a little offended. But uh, I feel like in the long run, you have uh, better relationships with people. And I feel like when you're very honest with people, they they sort of feel like it's okay for them to be very honest with you too. So uh, that's that's been very good for me. That's uh, That's been a good rule. It served you. Yeah, yeah, got it. And lastly, what's your biggest vice? Uh, I guess uh, drugs and alcohol, like everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> I love your honesty on that one too. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for taking time out of your day. To Thank share you, Fran. This was it. fun. I was, I'm so glad I was you. wrong about you being a one-head wonder. <laughs> well, let's see if that honesty maintains. No, thank you. I appreciate it. You got Thanks. it. Thanks. Bye, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.